0: chapter 64 of the virginians this librivox recording is in the public domain the virginians by william makepeace thackeray chapter 64 in which harry lives to fight another day the trusty gumbo could not console himself for the departure of his beloved master at least to judge from his tears and howls on first hearing the news of mr harry's enlistment you would have thought the negro's heart must break at the separation. No wonder he went for sympathy to the maid-servants at Mr. Lambert's lodgings. Wherever that dusky youth was he sought comfort in the society of females. Their fair and tender bosoms knew how to feel pity for the poor African, and the darkness of Gumbo's complexion was no more repulsive to them than Othello's to Desdemona. I believe Europe has never been so squeamish in regard to Africa as a certain other respected quarter. Nay, some Africans, witness the Chevalier de St. George, for instance, have been notorious favourites with the fair sex. So, in his humbler walk, was Mr. Gumbo. The Lambert servants wept freely in his company. The maids kindly considered him not only as Mr. Harry's man, but their brother hetty could not help laughing when she found gumbo roaring because his master had gone a volunteer as he called it and had not taken him he was ready to save master harry's life any day and would have done it and had himself cut in twenty thousand hundred pieces for master harry that he would meanwhile nature must be supported and he condescended to fortify her by large supplies of beer and cold meat in the kitchen. That he was greedy, idle, and told lies is certain, but yet Hetty gave him half a crown and was especially kind to him. Her tongue, that was wont to wag so pertly, was so gentle now that you might fancy it had never made a joke. She moved about the house mum and meek. She was humble to mamma. Thankful to John and Betty when they waited at dinner, patient to Polly when the latter pulled her hair in combing it, long-suffering when Charlie from school trod on her toes or deranged her work-box. Silent in papa's company. Oh, such a transmogrified little Hetty! If papa had ordered her to roast the leg of mutton, or walk to church arm-in-arm arm with Gumbo she would have made a curtsey and said yes if you please dear papa leg of mutton what sort of meal were some poor volunteers having with the cannon-balls flying about their heads church when it comes to the prayer in time of war oh how her knees smite together as she kneels and hides her head in the pew she holds down her head when the parson reads out thou shalt do no murder from the communion-rail, and fancies he must be looking at her. How she thinks of all travellers by land or by water! How she sickens as she runs to the paper to read if there is news of the expedition! How she watches papa when he comes home from his ordnance office and looks in his face to see if there is good news or bad. Is he well? Is he made a general yet? Is he wounded and made a prisoner? ah me or perhaps are both his legs taken off by one shot like that pensioner they saw in chelsea garden the other day she would go on wooden legs all her life if his can but bring him safe home at least she ought never to get up off her knees until he is returned haven't you heard of people theo says she whose hair has grown grey in a single night I shouldn't wonder if mine did. Shouldn't wonder in the least." And she looks in the glass to ascertain that phenomenon. "'Hetty, dear, you used not to be so nervous when Papa was away in Minorca," remarks Theo. "'Ah, Theo, one may very well see that George is not with the army, but safe at home,' rejoins Hetty, whereat the elder sister blushes and looks very pensive. Oh, fight! If Mr. George had been in the army, that, you see, would have been another pair of boots. Meanwhile, we don't intend to harrow anybody's kind feelings any longer, but may as well state that Harry is, for the present, as safe as any officer of the Life Guards at Regent's Park Barracks. The first expedition in which our gallant volunteer was engaged may be called successful, but certainly was not glorious. The British lion, or any other lion, cannot always have a worthy enemy to combat, or a battle royal to deliver. Suppose he goes forth in quest of a tiger who won't come, and lays his paws on a goose and gobbles him up. Lions, we know, must live like any other animals. But suppose advancing into the forest in search of the tiger, aforesaid, and bellowing his challenge of war, he spies not one but six tigers coming towards him. This manifestly is not his game at all. He puts his tail between his royal legs and retreats into his own snug den as quickly as he may. Were he to attempt to go and fight six tigers, you might write that lion down an ass." Now Harry Warrington's first feat of war was in this wise. He and about thirteen thousand other fighting men embarked in various ships and transports on the first of June from the Isle of Wight, and at daybreak on the fifth the fleet stood into the bay of Cancal in Brittany. For a while he and the gentlemen-volunteers had the pleasure of examining the French coast from their ships, whilst the commander-in-chief and the commodore reconnoitred the bay in a cutter. Cattle were seen, and some dragoons, who trotted off into the distance, and a little fort with a couple of guns had the audacity to fire at his grace of Marlborough and the commodore in the cutter. By two o'clock the whole British fleet was at anchor, and signal was made for all the grenadier companies of eleven regiments to embark on board flat-bottomed boats and assemble round the Commodore's ship, the Essex. Meanwhile Mr. Howe, hoisting his broad pennant on board the success frigate, went in as near as possible to shore, followed by the other frigates, to protect the landing of the troops and now with lord george sackville and general dury in command the gentlemen volunteers the grenadier companies and three battalions of guards pulled to shore the gentlemen volunteers could not do any heroic deed upon this occasion because the french who should have stayed to fight them ran away and the frigates having silenced the fire of the little fort which had disturbed the reconnaissance of the commander-in-chief the army presently assaulted it, taking the whole garrison prisoner and shooting him in the leg. Indeed it was but one old gentleman, who gallantly had fired his two guns, and who told his conquerors, "'If every Frenchman had acted like me, you would not have landed at Conquart at all.' The advanced detachment of invaders took possession of the village of Cancal, where they lay upon their arms all night and our volunteer was joked by his comrades about his eagerness to go out upon the war-path and bring in two or three scalps of Frenchmen. None such, however, fell under his tomahawk, the only person slain on the whole day being a French gentleman who was riding with his servant, and was surprised by volunteer Lord Downe, marching in the front with a company of Kingsley's. My Lord Downe offered the gentleman quarter which he foolishly refused, whereupon he, his servant, and the two horses were straightway shot. Next day the whole force was landed, and advanced from cancale to St. Malo. All the villages were emptied through which the troops passed, and the roads were so narrow in many places that the men had to march single file, and might have been shot down from behind the tall leafy hedges, had there been any enemy to disturb them. At nightfall the army arrived before St. Malo, and were saluted by the fire of artillery from that town, which did little damage in the darkness. Under cover of this the British set fire to the ships, wooden buildings, pitch and tar magazines in the harbour, and made a prodigious conflagration that lasted the whole night. This feat was achieved without any attempt on the part of the French to molest the British force. But, as it was confidently asserted that there was a considerable French force in the town of St. Malo, though they wouldn't come out, His Grace, the Duke of Marlborough and my Lord George Sackville, determined not to disturb the garrison, marched back to Caicale again and—and and so got on board their ships. If this were not a voracious history, don't you think that it would have been easy to send our Virginian on a more glorious campaign? exactly four weeks after his departure from england mr warrington found himself at portsmouth again and addressed a letter to his brother george with which the latter ran off to dean street so soon as ever he received it glorious news ladies cries he finding the lambert family all at breakfast our champion has come back he has undergone all sorts of dangers but has survived them all he has seen dragons. Upon my word, he says so.' "'Dragons? What do you mean, Mr. Warrington? "'But not killed any. He says so, as you shall hear. He writes, "'Dearest brother, I think you will be glad to hear that I am returned, without any commission as yet, without any wounds or glory, but at any rate alive and hearty. On board our ship we were almost as crowded as poor Mr. Holwell and his friends in their black hole at Calicutta. We had rough weather, and some of the gentlemen volunteers, who prefer smooth water, grumbled not a little. My gentlemen's stomachs are dainty, and after Brown's cookery and White's kickshaws, they don't like plain sailor's rum and biscuit but i who have been at sea before took my rations and can of flip very contentedly being determined to put a good face on everything before our fine english macaronis and show that a virginia gentleman is as good as the best of em i wish for the honour of old virginia that i had more to brag about but all i can say in truth is that we have been to france and come back again why i don't think even your tragic pen could make anything of such a campaign as ours has been we landed on the sixth at Cancal bay we saw a few dragons on a hill there <laughs> did i not tell you there were dragons asks george laughing mercy what can he mean by dragons cries hetty immense long-tailed monsters with steel scales on their backs who vomit fire and gobble up a virgin a day haven't you read about them in the seven champions says papa seeing st george's flag i suppose they slunk off i have read of them, says the little boy from Chartreux solemnly they like to eat women one was going to eat andromeda you know papa and jason killed another who was guarding the apple tree a few dragons on a hill george resumes, who rode away from us without engaging we slept under canvas we marched to st malo and burned ever so many privateers there and we went on board ship again without ever crossing swords with an enemy or meeting any except a few poor devils whom the troops plundered better luck next time this hasn't been very much nor particular glorious, but I have liked it, for my part. I have smelt powder, besides a good deal of rosin and pitch we burned. I've seen the enemy, have slept under canvas, and been dreadful crowded and sick at sea. I like it. My best compliments to dear Aunt Lambert, and tell Miss Hetty I wasn't very much frightened when I saw the French horse. Your most affectionate brother, H.E. Warrington. We hope Miss Hetty's qualms of conscience were allayed by Harry's announcement that his expedition was over and that he had, so far, taken no hurt. Far otherwise, Mr. Lambert, in the course of his official duties, had occasion to visit the troops at Portsmouth and the Isle of Wight, and George Warrington bore him company. They found Harry vastly improved in spirits and health from the excitement produced by the little campaign quite eager and pleased to learn his new military duties, active, cheerful, and healthy, and altogether a different person from the listless, moping lad who had dawdled in London coffee-houses and Mrs. Lambert's drawing-room. The troops were under canvas, the weather was glorious, and George found his brother a ready pupil in a fine-brisk, open-air school of war. Not a little amused, the elder brother, arm in arm with the young volunteer, paced the streets of the warlike city, recalled his own brief military experiences of two years back, and saw here a much greater army than that ill-fated one of which he had shared the disasters. The expedition, such as we have seen it, was certainly not glorious, and yet the troops and the nation were in high spirits with it. We were said to have humiliated the proud Gaul. We should have vanquished as well as humbled him had he dared to appear. What valour, after all, is like British valour? I dare say some such expressions have been heard in later times, not that I would hint that our people brag much more than any other, or more now than formerly. Have not these eyes beheld the battlegrounds of Leipzig, Jena? Dresden, Waterloo, Blenheim, Bunker's Hill, New Orleans. What heroic nation has not fought, has not conquered, has not run away, has not bragged in its turn? Well, the British nation was much excited by the glorious victory of St. Malo. Captured treasures were sent home and exhibited in London. The people were so excited that more laurels and more victories were demanded and the enthusiastic army went forth to seek some. With this new expedition went a volunteer so distinguished that we must give him precedence of all other amateur soldiers or sailors. This was our sailor-prince, H.R.H., Prince Edward, who was conveyed on board the Essex in the ship's 12 oared barge, the standard of England flying in the bow of the boat, the admiral with his flag and boat following the princes and all the captains following in seniority. Away sails the fleet, Harry in high health and spirits waving his hat to his friends as they cheer from the shore. He must and will have his commission before long. There can be no difficulty about that, George thinks. There is plenty of money in his little store to buy his brother's ensigncy but if he can win it without purchase by gallantry and good conduct, that were best. The colonel of the regiment reports highly of his recruit. Men and officers like him. It is easy to see that he is a young fellow of good promise and spirit. Hip, hip, huzzay! What famous news are these which arrive ten days after the expedition has sailed? On the 7th and 8th of August? His Majesty's troops had effected a landing in the Bay des Marais, two leagues westward of Cherbourg, in the face of a large body of the enemy. Awed by the appearance of British valour, that large body of the enemy has disappeared. Cherbourg has surrendered at discretion, and the English colours are hoisted on the three outlying forts. Seven and twenty ships have been burned in the harbours, and a prodigious number of fine brass cannon taken. As for your common iron guns, we have destroyed them. Likewise the basin, about which the moon seers bragged so, and the two piers at the entrance to the harbour. There is no end of jubilation in London. Just as Mr. Howe's guns arrive from Cherbourg, come Mr. Wolfe's colours captured at Louisbourg. The colors are taken from Kensington to St Paul's, escorted by fourscore life guards and fourscore horse grenadiers, with officers in proportion, their standards, kettle drums, and trumpets. At St Paul's, they are received by the Dean in Chapter at the West Gate, and at that minute, bang, bong, bong, the Tower and Park guns salute them. Next day is the turn of the chairboard cannon and mortars these are the guns we took. Look at them with their carving and flaunting emblems, their lilies and crowns and mottos. Here they are, the tenure, the malvissant, the vainqueur, the vainqueur indeed, a pretty vainqueur of Britons, and ever so many more. How the people shout as the pieces are trailed through the streets in procession. As for Hetty and Mrs. Lambert. I believe they are of opinion that Harry took every one of the guns himself, dragging them out of the batteries and destroying the artillerymen. He has immensely risen in the general estimation in the last few days. Madame de Bernstein has asked about him. Lady Maria has begged her dear cousin George to see her, and, if possible, give her news of his brother. George, who was quite the head of the family a couple of months since, finds himself deposed and of scarce any account, in Miss Hetty's eyes, at least. Your wit and your learning and your tragedies may be all very well, but what are these in comparison to victories and brass cannon? George takes his deposition very meekly. They are fifteen thousand Britons. Why should they not march and take Paris itself? Nothing more probable, thinks some of the ladies. They embrace, they congratulate each other. They are in a high state of excitement. For once they long that Sir Miles and Lady Warrington were in town, so that they may pay her ladyship a visit, and ask, "'What do you say to your nephew now, pray? Has he not taken twenty-one finest brass cannon, flung a hundred and twenty iron guns into the water, seized twenty-seven ships in the harbour, and destroyed the basin and the two piers at the entrance?' As the whole town rejoices and illuminates, so these worthy folks display brilliant red hangings in their cheeks, and lighten up candles of joy in their eyes, in honour of their champion and conqueror. But now, I grieve to say, comes a cloudy day after the fair weather. The appetite of our commanders, growing by what it fed on, led them to think they had not feasted enough on the plunder of St. Malo, and thither, after staying a brief time at Portsmouth and the White, the soldiers of Cherbourg returned. They were landed in the Bay of St. Lunar, at a distance of a few miles from the place, and marched towards it, intending to destroy it this time. Meanwhile, the harbour of St. Lunar was found insecure and the fleet moved up to St. Cass, keeping up its communication with the invading army now the british lion found that the town of saint malo which he had proposed to swallow at a single mouthful was guarded by an army of french which the governor of brittany had brought to the succour of his good town and the meditated coup de main being thus impossible our leaders marched for their ships again which lay duly awaiting our warriors in the bay of saint cass hide blushing glory hide saint cass's day as our troops were marching down to their ships, they became aware of an army following them, which the French governor of the province had sent from Brest. Two-thirds of the troops and all the artillery were already embarked when the Frenchmen came down upon the remainder. Four companies of the 1st Regiment of Guards and the grenadier companies of the army faced about on the beach to await the enemy whilst the remaining troops were carried off in the boats. As the French descended from the heights round the bay, these guards and grenadiers marched out to attack them, leaving an excellent position which they had occupied, a great dyke raised on the shore, and behind which they might have resisted to advantage. And now eleven hundred men were engaged with six, nay ten times their number, and after a while broke and made for the boats with a suave grippier. Seven hundred out of the eleven were killed, drowned, or taken prisoners. The general himself was killed, and, ah, where were the volunteers? A man of peace myself, and little intelligent of the practice or the details of war. I own, I think, less of the engaged troops than of the people they leave behind. Jack the Guardsman and La Tulipe of the Royal Breton are face to face and striving to knock each other's brains out bon it is their nature to, like the bears and lions and we will not say heaven but some power or other has made them so to do but the girl of tower hill who hung on jack's neck before he departed and the lass at quimper who gave the frenchman his brule guelle and tobacco-box before he departed on une toiger. What have you done, poor little tender hearts, that you should grieve so? My business is not with the army, but with the people left behind. What a fine state Miss Hetty Lambert must be in when she hears of the disaster to the troops and the slaughter of the grenadier companies! What grief and doubt are in George Warrington's breast! What commiseration in Martin Lambert's as he looks into his little girl's face and reads her piteous story there! How the brave Commodore, rowing in his barge under the enemy's fire, has rescued with his boats scores and scores of our flying people. More are drowned, hundreds of prisoners are shot on the beach. Among these, where is our Virginian? End of chapter 64